You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Romans chapter 8. It would be helpful to have a Bible out and open on your lap this morning. Um, It would help you follow along and uh, stay engaged with us. So Romans chapter 8 is where we are. Um, And as you're turning there, let me just kind of reintroduce a couple of of things with Romans 8. We've said this the last couple of weeks that if you want to think about Romans 8 in two uh, categories of unequal length, uh, this would be the two categories, the two sort of parts to it. Part one is the first 30 verses of Romans 8, so 1 through 30. And in that section, Paul is just unpacking really one gospel promise after another. He's reminding us over and over, verse after verse, of what we have and what we are in Jesus. And then uh, then you get to verse 31, and you get the, the last nine verses. And in the last nine verses, Paul is inviting us to respond to what he has just said, the content that he's just laid out in front of us, the promises that he has just given us. And and Paul's point in the last nine verses is to say, I don't want you just to know these things intellectually. I I don't want you just to have more knowledge in your brain. I want you to be nourished by these promises. I want you to be able to stand on these promises. I want you to be refreshed by these promises. I want you to bring them to bear on your life so that they do something to you. So this is what we're getting in the last nine nine verses of Romans 8, this encouragement from Paul to respond appropriately, to apply these these gospel promises in appropriate ways to our life. And then the last nine verses, they come in six questions. And we've just taken the last few weeks to begin to journey through these questions. So a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with questions one and two. It's in verse 31, where Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then last week, we have this incredibly precious promise in um, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Man, such a beautiful promise in in Romans 8.32. And now we are to 33 and 34, those two verses. And uh, in those two verses, we get question four and five. So we're gonna deal with both of these two questions today, questions four and five in the six questions that make up the last nine verses. So verse 33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So when I think about these two questions, I really think they're forming one question. I think they're addressing kind of both of these two questions are both addressing the exact same issue. So I'm just grouping question four and five together and treating them as one issue that Paul is working us through, wanting us to think about preaching to our heart this morning. So there's one, there's one primary thing that he's getting at. So I think it's fair. If you want to kind of rework verses 33 and 34, you could rework it like this. You could imagine Paul saying, who shall bring any charge against God's elect or who is there to condemn? Who who can do that? And then he answers it. It is God who justifies. How does he justify? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. So it's really forming, although it comes in two questions, it's addressing the same exact issue. Now, we have said this uh, repeatedly over the last few weeks that Paul uses pastoral logic here. He is not just writing to write. He is writing because he cares about a church in Rome. He knows the people of the church in Rome and he's writing to address their particular hurts and hangups. 
He's, he's writing to address particular issues going on in their soul that this, these particular verses are going to help remedy and correct in their life. So it's important to ask the question, what would be the sort of soul sickness or the sort of tendencies that he's seeing in the people in Rome, in this particular church? What, what is he seeing in them that he's correcting? Like he's writing this for a reason. What's the reason? Who is he writing this to? What, what particular hangups is he writing it to? Here would be my answer to that. Verses 33 and 34. They are written to address the deep-seated questions that, that are really in every single human heart. And, and here are the questions they, they are written to address. What does God really think of me? I mean, what does God really think of me? Is God really okay with me? In light of my sin, the darkness that's in me, can God really find it within his big heart to love me? That those are the questions that Paul is addressing in verses 33 and 34. Now, to, to make you know, what Paul says about those questions come to life, we've got to do some work in understanding how we're asking similar questions. How the questions of, does God really love me? Is there any way that God can even like me? We've got to do some work in seeing that those questions live in us. So to get to this passage, that's going to come at the end of the sermon, we're going to have to kind of do this journey together in learning a little bit about our own heart and some of what's driving each of us in the room. So I'm going to invite you over the next about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, just to do some thinking with me. You're going to have to think. You can't be a passive listener here. You're going to have to think and you're going to have to kind of take this journey with me here. So let me start with a couple of statements to just kind of lead into this. Here's the first statement. <clears throat> There is, within every one of our hearts, a deep ache to be justified. There is, within every human heart, a deep ache to be justified. Now, what is the word justified getting at? The word justified is a, is a, is a one-word kind of explanation of the deep ache we all have to be fully known, all the way down into the dirty depths of our soul, to be fully known, and at the same time, fully loved, delighted in, and accepted. We all have a deep ache for that, to be fully known and at the same time fully loved, delighted in, and accepted. It's interesting, you know, when we come to the Bible, I think it's always interesting just to kind of think about what we're coming, like the assumptions we're coming preloaded with when we, you know, when we open up the Bible and read it. And one of the things I think, um, in particular in our culture, that we're prone to is to come to the Bible believing it doesn't care about the questions that we care about. So when we read, we're in a passage like this where it says, and it's God who justifies. I think we're prone to saying, I don't really use the word justified in my normal kind of everyday vocabulary. And I don't really care about the word justified. I don't really care that God justifies me. Now, I just wanna take a step back and try to convince you that the Bible cares and is concerned about the exact same questions you care about and are concerned about. The Bible addresses the deep questions we're all trying to, you know, all trying to, we're all asking and trying to get answers for. The Bible cares about those exact questions. Now this word justified, I think is like a, a perfect case in point in this. That word justified may not have made it in your last week's sort of vocabulary, but that word justified, the questions around that word, you carried with you everywhere you went last week. You're gonna carry them with you to work tomorrow morning. You're gonna take them into your group of friends. You're gonna take them into your family. You brought them with you this morning. Justification questions are universal human questions. We all care about justification questions. As a, for instance, let me just give you kind of what some of these questions sound like. 
the questions of, am I really okay? Am I really good enough? Do, do I measure up? Like th those are all justification questions. If, if, if people knew me all the way down into the dirty depths of me, what would people think about me? That's a justification question. Now, all of those are sort of surface rumblings to the deeper mega questions that we're asking of God. All of those are horizontal questions. The biggest questions are the justification questions that go vertical up to God. Those are the questions, the, the big ones. What does God really think of me? Do, do I really measure up to God? In light of what I've done and left undone, how could God ever find it within his heart to love me? in light of all the darkness that's in me. And listen, if we just went to the laundry list that's in each of us in this room, it would be staggering, wouldn't it? I mean, just the stuff that's in me, the stuff that's in you. We have all sorts of darkness in us and it leads us to ask these questions to God. God, in light of that, how could you ever, not just love me, how could you ever even like me? How, how could you, God? Those are justification questions. Now, these justification questions that we're all asking, they start really early in our life. We see these really early on. So in my house, I have four kids that are eight and under. And it is amazing how justification questions just bubble up and they don't even know that they're asking justification questions. They're just asking the questions that's on their heart. As a for instance, um, every time Caleb, he's playing baseball right now, every time he comes off the field, every time he'll run up to either Laura or I and he's gonna ask this question, dad, didn't I do awesome? Wasn't I great out there? That's justification questions. That is him. It, underneath that question is a deep reservoir underneath him saying, dad, I'm okay, right? I, I measure up, right? I, I'm, I'm, things are okay with me, right? Those are justification questions. Hannah, this last week came home after doing really well, uh, well on a spelling test. She made a hundred on it. She brought the paper home. One of the first things she did was whip out that paper out of her backpack and look at her mom and say, mom, I made a hundred. Didn't I do awesome? Eva is doing cartwheels in the backyard uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, cartwheel after cartwheel. After she finishes, the first thing she does is look up at me and say, dad, wasn't that awesome? Those are justification questions. Uh, Laura was dressing our youngest uh, this morning and Laura put a little bow in her hair, had her just dressed so pretty this morning. And as soon as she popped up after being dressed, she ran into the bathroom where I was just kind of finishing up. She comes into the bathroom and she just stands there with the bow in her hair, just looking at me. I mean, it was such a classic moment. I look at her and I'm like, oh my gosh, you are so precious. And as soon as I said that, this smile just broke out on her face. Those are justification questions. That's what's happening in those moments. It is that deep longing for justification rising out of their hearts. Now hear me on this. Those justification questions don't go away. The, the, the questions that start early stay with us all of our lives. It's not like you wake up and magically when you're 30 or 40 or 50 and you just stop asking those questions. Every one of us in the room are still asking those exact same questions. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Do you remember that movie? Um, it's the story of Eric Little. And he was an Olympic gold kind of medalist, sort of a runner. He ends up uh, letting go of the track thing to go be a missionary in China. So it's just his story. And uh, kind of the, 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 the guy set beside him through much of the story is another Olympic sprinter. His name is Harold Abrams. 
And there's this one uh, scene in that movie where Harold Abrams is about to go like, it's the big race. The big race is here. They're an hour away from Harold Abrams running the big race. And there's this interesting scene where Harold Abrams is thinking about the big race and he says this. He says, I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. Welcome to many of our lives, right? I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. Out there is on the track. I'm forever in pursuit, don't know what I'm chasing, but I know this in an hour's time, I'm gonna be out there on the track again. And I'm gonna raise my eyes and look down that corridor. He's just picturing the 100 meter race he's about to run. He's gonna look down this corridor that's four feet wide and then listen to his last statement. With 10 lonely seconds, to justify my whole existence. That's a justification moment. That is the deep longing for justification, not just rising out of a four-year-old's heart, but out of a grown man's heart. He's looking at his life and he's asking the question, what's gonna make me okay? What's gonna give me that deep sense of, I measure up, I finally made, what's gonna give me that? Harold Abrams is surveying the landscape of things and he says, you know what's gonna give me that? A track is gonna give me that. Me accomplishing things, that's what's going to give me that. He's looking around and he's asking the deep justification question, what is gonna make me okay? He's concerned about that question. That is a totally relevant question in his life. And he's looking at a 10 second race to justify his existence, to give him that deep inner sense of, I've made it, I'm really okay. Now, let's take another step here. The reason that is in a four-year-old's heart and the reason it is in an adult man like Harold Abrams' heart and the reason it's in your heart is because we were made for it. The reason that we long for that, the reason that we ask those questions is because God has planted those questions in us. He has hardwired us to ask these sorts of things about our life. You know, when I think about the, um, what explains the uh, um, life as we know it, as well as anything out there, the first three chapters of Genesis is the thing. It explains so much of what you and I are dealing with on a daily basis. Now, let me just unpack Genesis 1, and two, uh, 1 through 3 in light of these justification questions. If you'll remember back to Genesis 1 and 2, um, it shows us a picture of our good dad, God, uh, creating a beautiful garden and, and planting our first parents right in the middle of this beautiful garden. And if you'll remember in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, they are, they are both fully known by God. Like God looks at all of them, sees all of them. And at the same time, they are fully loved and delighted in by God. They, they are experiencing justification, fully loved and fully delighted in by God. They were justified. They were examined all the way down into the depths of their soul. And the most you know, influential voice in the universe, God's voice, pronounced over them a yes, I love you. You're accepted, you're delighted in, you're, you're loved. Then if you get to Genesis chapter three, this is where everything breaks down in the Bible. In Genesis chapter three, our first parents rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And with that first sin, our first parents felt something they had never felt before in their life. They felt naked. They felt exposed. They felt like there was something to hide. They knew that something was now wrong deep down in their soul. And maybe a different way you could say it is they, they had lost their presentability. And, and 
for the first time in Genesis 3, they feel what it feels like to lose your presentability before God. It feels like you're naked, that you have something to hide, that you have something to try to cover up in your life, that you can't let people see the real you because if they see the real you, there's no way they could like the real you. They felt that for the first time. And if you'll remember how the, the, the narrative plays forth in Genesis 3, in light of feeling that, nakedness, exposure, those sorts of feelings, that sense of unpresentability, what did they do in Genesis 3? They, they took whatever was around them. They, they took fig leaves. That's what they took. And they cut up the fig leaves and tried to patch up their presentability. They tried to make themselves feel okay about them by doing something. Okay, that was their solution to it. Now, let me just summarize those first three chapters like this. Our first parents longed for presentability, for their justification, to be fully known and fully loved. They longed for presentability because they were made for presentability. They were made to find that in God. But because of their sin, what they longed for was lost. And after they lost it in Genesis 3, they began the desperate search to regain it. They started to work, do anything they could to patch together a new sense of, depend, or, uh, of presentability. Now, that episode of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 does such a great job of, of, of just kind of laying out for you and I what is driving so much of our lives. We are looking at our lives and we know, just like our first parents, that something is wrong with us. That deep down, if, if people look at us long enough and hard enough, they're gonna find things in us that are unlovable. You know that about your heart. I know that about my heart. That there are things broken and wrong deep down in us. That when, you know, when the dust settles and the smoke clears, that there is way more shadows in our life and way less substance to, to our life. Okay, so we, we, we have that deep inner sense. And just like our first parents, what we so often do in response to that feeling of unpresentability, that, that feeling of we know we're broken, we know that. What we so often try to do is, is to do something, right? So, so our do something is we find whatever we can in our life to patch up a, a sense of presentability. We'll take this thing. We'll take that thing. We'll do whatever it takes to work to regain that lost sense of presentability that we had. Um, Blaise Pascal, as he's kind of talking about, he's an old French philosopher, as he's talking about one of the human kind of conditions and the human, one of the human drivers that's just underneath so much of what we're doing, he says it this way, that we're all living with a disinherited prince syndrome. That's his way of saying, we all have a faint memory of what we were and what we had in Genesis 1 and 2, that deep sense of justification. God knows me and delights in me. And he says, now what is driving so much of our life is we are re, you know, working to regain what we lost in Genesis 3. This is what's underneath your, so much of your life, what's underneath so much of my life. We are all on the desperate search to regain the presentability that we have lost. Okay, now with that said, now we can ask the big question. One of the biggest questions in your life and in my life is what we do with that sense of unpresentability. One of the biggest questions that you've got to figure out, we're, we're all doing this right now. We're all, we've all found ways to cope with that sense of, uh, with you know, a lack of presentability. One of the biggest things you can do is to figure out what are the options and what's going to work. And the Bible lays out two options for us to deal with our lack of presentability. That deep innate sense of something is wrong in me. That if, if people look at me long enough and hard enough, they're going to find things that are not lovable. Okay, 
Two options for that. Here are the two options the Bible lays out, that, that, you know, two places we can take that unpresentability or that lack of presentability. Number one, we can depend on our own works. This is exactly what our first parents did. This is the human kind of default in our heart. The human default is to say, I feel a sense of unpresentability, that, I, that I'm not presentable anymore. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get to work doing something to regain it, right? This, this is what you might call self-justification. It is what by nature every human being does. This is our default response to that inner sense of, I know I don't measure up. So how am I gonna measure up? I'm gonna do something to go measure up. Now, the doing something comes in two forms. Now, this is massively important. You gotta think with me here. The us depending on our own work, self-justification. I feel a sense of I don't measure up. I'm gonna go do something to, to measure up. That comes in two different forms. There's two ways that we can do the self-justification thing. There's two ways we can depend on our own works. One, we might call the secular way. The secular way. This is trying to patch up our own presentability and we are intentionally leaving God out of the picture. We're not trying to like, we're not trying to like put a glorified sense of Godness on our patching up uh, presentability. God is not in the picture. We're just trying to figure out in life. We're not looking at God for it. We're just figuring out in life, how are we gonna do this? And we just get to work doing it. Think Harold Abrams. He's just surveying the landscape of options and he's like, I'm good at track. So track would probably be the best way for me to patch up my presentability. If I can just do well enough, accomplish enough in track, surely I won't have that innate sense of, of, of not measuring up. Surely that will ease that ache in me if I can just do this well enough. Okay, so this is one of the things we do. We just look around and it may not be track for you, but it's something for you, right? So we just look around and survey the landscape and we ask the question, what's it gonna be? What am I gonna use to patch up my presentability? We can use accomplishment. We can use money and possessions for that. We can, that so often that sort of like cutthroat competitive spirit that we have is rooted right in this. We're just trying to patch up that presentability. And here's the thing. It is impossible to live as a human being without depending on something or someone to patch up our presentability. So we just get to work doing it. Now here's the problem with all of these attempts. There is no amount of money, of accomplishment, or of winning that will ease that ache. Just hear that. I don't care how much you accomplish, how much money you have, how much you have won and done in your life, there is never going to be a moment when you accomplish the next thing that that deep ache goes away in you. If you don't believe me, you can trust Madonna. Listen to her talk about this. Trust Madonna, that is such an oxymoron. Okay, here we go though. So she says it like this, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. There it is. Are we seeing that? She, is, she, is, she has the boldness and the courage, I'll give her this, to just acknowledge, man, I feel that sense of insecurity in me. I feel that lack of presentability. I feel that. It makes me feel so inadequate in life. Like I don't measure up. Now listen to what she goes on to say. All of my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. That's a justification issue. I push past one spell of it and discover my spell, myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. 
She goes on, again and again and again, this plays itself out. I, I accomplish something, I feel good for a moment, and then the ache comes right back and I feel mediocre again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, of just not measuring up. Just, I feel that lack of presentability and I just can't stand it. So I'm driven not to, to cover that, to, to patch up a sense of presentability, to not be mediocre. And that's always pushing me, she's saying. It's always driving, always pushing. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm someone. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. And you know what? She's right. Because no amount of fame, no amount of accomplishment, no amount of money, no amount of winning, no amount of succeeding will ever ease that ache in her or in you. So this is one way we can go about doing it. We depend on our works in a secular way, a way that intentionally leaves God out. But another way we can depend on our work is not the secular way, we might call it the religious way. This is like putting a facade of God over our depending upon our own works. So we're gonna get about doing things, but we're not gonna look to attract to do it. We're gonna look to like quote unquote godly things to do it. We're gonna look to like how much we know the Bible and read the Bible, how often we fast, how often we pray, how often we serve, how often we are doing things in the name of God. It's not gonna be the secular sort of like find a track or find a stage to do it. We're gonna look at things that God would look at and say, yes, that is awesome. We're gonna look at those things to try to patch up our presentability. Have you ever stopped to think about this? Our hearts are so prone to depend on their own works to patch up their presentability that that, that make, it creates this scenario that so much of the religious-y sort of things that we are doing has nothing to do with worship of God and everything to do with patching up our presentability. So, so we're doing all of this good stuff in the name of God. Like we're serving in the name of God. We're going to church in the name of God. We're leading home groups in the name of God. We're doing... I'm preaching in the day. I'm doing all of this stuff in the name of God. But really what I'm doing so often is I'm depending on those things to ease that ache of of, uh, that lack of presentability in me. I mean, have you ever stopped to think about that? Let, Let me give you one illustration of a guy in church history who discovered he was doing that. David Brainerd was a missionary in the 1700s to Native Americans. And uh, he died at an early age in his 20s. But he just happened to die in the house of Jonathan Edwards, who then took his journal entries, published those, and it became kind of an instant classic in church history. And listen to one of David Brainerd's, just, this is around the time of his conversion. Listen to him discover in his life, wow, I am using religious things to patch up my presentability. Listen to how he says it. When I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I even thought I must be very seriously religious because I considered entering the the ministry. Like I'm in like the Navy SEALs now because I'm doing like the missionary ministry work. I had a very good outside, like I, I, I behaved well. And trust, uh, so I had a very good outside, but I trusted entirely in my religious duties. I thought that through my repenting, God loves repentance, through my praising him, God loves those things, and seeking him, I could make good steps toward heaven. I told myself, God must accept you because look at how wholeheartedly wholeheartedly you serve and seek him. But the more I tried to love God with all my soul, the more I saw how little I really loved him. 
One night I remember in particular when I was walking alone, I saw it was totally impossible for me to answer the demands of God's law and do anything toward delivering myself. I realized that all my struggling to become worthy, that's a justification question to feel measured up, all of my struggling to become worthy was an exercise in self-worship. I was not worshiping God, but using God. Then at that time, the true way of salvation opened to my mind, not by my own contrivances, my own doing, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ, entirely by the doing of Christ. I felt myself in a new world and everything about me appeared with a different aspect from before. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm doing all of these religious things, but I'm not doing them out of a love of God. I'm doing them in an effort to patch up my presentability, to regain that inner sense of, I finally measured up. Now, let's just talk for just a moment here. I think that the, here's the paradigm I think most Christians live in, most people live in, most people who are, are following Jesus live in. There is a circle, we'll just call this the circle of presentability. And it's got a clearly defined outer edge. Like you're either in or you're out of the circle of of presentability before God. And I think what happens to most Christians is somewhere along the way, the default kind of operating system in our heart kicks back in. And we think like this, here's how I get in the circle of presentability and here's how I get out of the circle. To get in the circle, I have to behave well enough. And when I behave well enough, then I'm in the circle of presentability and now God loves me and and actually probably kind of likes me. But then when I don't behave very well, I get kicked out of the circle of presentability. So I'm in when I behave good and I'm out when I don't behave so well. I just think this is the the paradigm that most of us get caught up in. Most of us believe that there is a future version or a better version of ourselves that as soon as we can attain that version of ourselves, then God will really like us. Now, if we feel that, And that is betraying that we are depending on our own works for our presentability. It's betraying that that we're not depending on God. We are depending on our works to make us presentable before God. Now, I want you to think about what that produces in your life and my life when this is the paradigm we work in. There's a better version of me. Then God will love me. Presentability circle. We behave our way in it. We behave our way out of it. When we operate like that, listen to a guy named Richard Loveless describe what that produces. He says it like this. Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements. See that? So so he's saying that, that Christians who no longer are sure that they're inside the circle unless they are behaving well. Okay, for those people who this whole paradigm works. You behave your way in, God loves you. You behave your way out. And when you behave badly, God doesn't love you. He says, apart, you know, for those people, there is a subconscious and radical insecurity in their life. Subconsciously, he says, they are radically insecure people. Their insecurity shows itself in many different ways, in pride. So when they're doing well, man, they feel great about themselves. It also shows itself in a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness. So we become very brittle and cantankerous. We can't receive criticism. He goes on and it shows itself in defensive criticism of others. And we could just go on with with other things that that sort of insecurity produces in our life. It produces not only pride when we do well, it produces despair when we behave badly. It produces constant comparison to other people. It produces envy of other people. It produces a lack of vulnerability in our heart. 
It, it makes us unable to present weakness to other people. We constantly have to present strength to other people because that strength is how we're trying to like get in the circle of presentability. This is how we do it. It makes us radically insecure people. You know, I, I don't know, like one of the things that I have just really grown to be amazed of in my own heart is how insecure I am. And I, I think that you would, if you just know your own heart, you would probably see a lot of that in you too. And if we drill down under and ask the question, what is under that insecurity? Do you know what it is? We are depending on our own works to make us presentable. That's what's under it. This is one option that we can, as far as to try to deal with that lack of presentability, this is one option. We can depend on our own works. Makes us radically insecure when we do that. Now the Bible presents us with a different option though. Here is option number two. If option number one is we depend on our own works, option number two goes like this. We depend on the work of Jesus for us. Option number one, you're gonna just, just like our first parents, you're gonna get to work doing something to patch up your presentability. Option number one or two, we let go of all of our work to patch up our presentability and we throw ourselves onto the work of Jesus for our sense of presentability. Now that is the biblical option. That's what the Bible invites us into. This is one of the main things Paul is trying to do for us in Romans 8. He is saying, please stop living like that. That is a fleshly way of living. Rather than that, why don't you live in the spirit? And here's a spiritual way of living. You don't depend on your own works. You depend on the work of Jesus for you. Do you remember the first line, the first verse of Romans chapter eight? There is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is Paul's announcement that your presentability no longer rests on you, but on Jesus's work for you. That's his announcement of that. Then you get to verses 33 and 34 and Paul's just preaching that same truth to himself. He's rehearsing the same truth to himself. It's God who justifies. It is, it is God who does it. How does God do that? He does that through the perfect work of his son. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul is announcing, if you want the deep ache for presentability to be eased in your soul, there is only one way for that to ever happen in your life. That is to throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's it. That's the only way. So he says in, in verse 33, it is God who justifies. Now, what does that mean? It is God who justifies. And, and you know, contained in that word justifies really just a summary of the gospel. And here's the summary, that you and I have been caught red-handed in our rebellion and sin. It's not like, man, maybe they committed that. Maybe they rebelled. Maybe they, it's like we've been caught red-handed in our rebellion. We have been drugged into the courtroom of God. Justification is a courtroom word. And in that courtroom, our charges have been read. We have been found guilty. And right before God the Father slams down the gavel for our sentencing, in a sheer act of grace, God the Son shows up on the scene. He lives the life that we should have lived, but we could not live a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling the commands of God. He dies on the cross for our sin, all of our sin coming down and crushing Jesus. He's raised from the dead on the third day, all for our justification. It's as if, and that word justify, it's as if God comes to us and says, hey, can we make a deal? Here's the deal that I would love to make with you. Will you open up your hands and admit there is something deep down wrong with you? that there is darkness in you, 
there is sin in you, that there is brokenness that goes all the way to the depths of your soul, will you just open up your hands and admit that? And then can we make this deal? Would you give me your brokenness? Would you give me your sin and rebellion? Would you give me the darkness that you know is inside of you? Would you give me that? And in the gospel, Jesus opens up his hands and says, I'll receive that from you. Then God the Father looks back at you and says, now can we make the second part of the deal? Would you mind if I take the perfect record of righteousness that's in Jesus, perfectly fulfilling every command of mine, perfectly living the life that I wanted him to live? Would you mind if I took his perfect record of righteousness and I gave that to you? Would you be humble enough to receive his perfect record of righteousness so that for the rest of your life, every sin that you will ever commit will be charged to his account? And and then when I look at you, I'm gonna see you through the perfect lens of my beloved son, Jesus. Could, Could we make that deal? Would you let me take all of your sin? And in response, could I give you all of Jesus's perfection? Could we do that? That is the good news of the gospel. That, that, that is what Paul is alerting us to when he says, it is God who justifies. It is God who says, I will give you everything needed for your presentability and you don't have to work for it. All you have to do is receive the perfect work of Jesus for it. Can we make that trade? Is that not unbelievable? Is that not staggering that God would come to us with that sort of grace and mercy? The most influential voice in the universe is saying, if you'll open up your hands, allow me to have your sin, allow me to give you the perfect record of righteousness of Jesus. If you'll do that, the most influential voice of the universe will go from rejected over your life to now pronouncing over your life received. The most influential voice in the universe will go from saying sinner, that that being pronounced over your life to now looking at you and pronouncing over your life You're a son, you're a daughter of mine, you are mine, you're in my family. God saying that to you through the life, death and resurrection of a son. Now, when you get to verse 33 and 34, Paul is saying, now preach that to yourself. When you feel insecure, when you feel like you don't measure up, which is like every moment of every day for all of us, when you feel those sort of things, when you feel like there's no way in light of this last sin that I've committed like a billion times that God could actually love me. When you feel that way, Paul is saying, preach this to yourself. Preach it, rehearse it. Keep your forgetful minds. Keep this fresh in your forgetful minds. Re- rehearse this. He's inviting us to put this to use. What is he saying to put to use? Verse 33, here's how Paul preaches it to himself. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is there to condemn? Now notice, Paul doesn't say there is no one to bring a charge against God's elect. He doesn't say that. There's plenty of people to bring a charge against God's elect. Satan in Revelation 12 is called the accuser of the brethren. It says in Revelation 12, this is what he does day and night. He is a pro at hurling insult and accusations at the sons and daughters of God. So there's plenty of people to to offer accusations against the people of God. Satan is great at that. Other people can be great at doing that. I have found in my own life that I'm really good at doing that to myself. If you're like, one of just the wirings that I've learned about me is that I'm highly self-critical. So my conscience can just run on overdrive. And so I I can just be a really good accuser of myself. One of the ways I've just seen this play out lately is when I play tennis, kind of picked up tennis over the last few years. And uh, when I get on the tennis court, 
one of the twisted ways that I motivate myself for the next point. You, I, I wish I could put this on record and just let someone else listen to it because it is crazy. Here is the, here's the script that I often use to motivate myself for the next point. Rodney, you are by far the worst tennis player that's ever existed in the history of tennis players. You should be ashamed you even have a tennis racket. You are ridiculous. You're an idiot. What are you doing? This is, I mean, it's like that self-talk. It's the craziest thing. And if you've got a tender conscience, you're probably really familiar with that sort of self-talk. We can be really good at offering ourselves plenty of accusations. So Paul's not saying that no one's gonna offer accusations. Satan's good at it. Others are good at it. We're really good at it. Paul's point is no one can successfully bring an accusation against you. If like God has done this for you, no one can successfully bring a charge against you. And then he goes on. And I love, even in the way he asked the first question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In the way he asked the question, he is imparting comfort. He, he's, he's reminding us against God's who? Against who can bring any charge against who? Like, do you remember who you are? You're God's elect. You're the people of God. You're the people that before there was such a thing as time, he set his love and affection on you. Who can bring any charge against you? God loves you. So who could bring a charge against you? Then he goes on. It is God who justifies. I love the emphasis of that verse. It's not on your work at all. It is on God's work. It's God who justifies you. It's God who gives you that sense of presentability. It's God who justifies. How does God justify us? He goes on. Here's how he does it. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Jesus dying for, in my place for my sin. Christ Jesus is the one who died. He goes on. More than that, who was raised. Do you know what the resurrection says to us? One of many things it says. It is the stamp of approval of God, the Father. It is God the Father looking at God the Son and saying, I approve of your sacrifice for their sin. The resurrection is a reminder to you and I that God the Father is fully satisfied in the sacrifice of his Son for your sin and for my sin. What the cross you know, secures for us, the resurrection assures us of that. God the Father really is pleased with God the Son's sacrifice. When God the Son died, God the Father was pleased that all of our sin in that moment was paid for. So he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God the Father. That phrase in Hebrews, is, it often kind of works like this. It gives everything that God the Son, Jesus has done for us. And when he finished everything he came to do, then it says, and he was seated at the right hand of God, the Father. It's a way for Paul to say, everything needed for your justification, for your presentability, for you to measure up in God's sight. Everything needed has been done in Jesus. So Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Paul just gives one layer after another, trying to convince us, that every single thing needed to make you presentable has been done in the person and work of Jesus. So just throw your life on his work for you. There's your presentability. Paul's saying, preach that to yourself. Preach it to yourself. Now, let me just end with this. I want you to notice how Paul goes about preaching this to himself because I think it runs in a different direction than most of how we would naturally think that we would wanna do this. When we feel a sense of like a lack of presentability, when we feel like deep in our heart that we don't measure up, when we know that like the accusations come and like we're not very good, like when we feel those sort of things, here, I, I think this is the default response in our heart that we wanna say in that moment. 
we want to look at those accusations and feel those accusations and then say, but you know you're, that's not true. You, you know that accusation that I'm a, a dirtbag. Really, I'm not a dirtbag. I'm really a good person. I'm really a good guy. Like when we feel the accusation of you're not awesome, what we typically want to do is counter that with a, but you don't know how awesome I am. Now, here, that's not the way Paul argues. Arguing that way is showing you that you are depending on your work, not Jesus's work for you. Notice how Paul argues. Paul argues by saying, you're right. You're right. This is Romans 7. The things I wanna do, I don't do. The things I don't wanna do, I find myself doing them. I, I am that bad, wretched man that I am. He receives the accusations and he says, you know what, that, that's right. So there is so much of what's going on there that is so true in that moment, right? This is the way he receives that. But then he answers it like this, but there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He doesn't appeal to his own works to regain his presentability in that moment. He appeals to the work of Jesus to regain his presentability in that moment. Let me just give you a living example of this. Or well, he's dead now, but used to be alive example. <laughs> Martin Luther. A Protestant reformer. I, I use this illustration quite a bit because I just wanted to get into the fabric of our lives in here. So uh, during the Protestant Reformation, he was just receiving all sorts of accusations. And he was a man with a really tender conscience. And so he, he would receive those accusations and they would take him to the brink of despair really, really quickly. And one night um, he was uh, dreaming and Satan came to him in a dream and just offering one insult and one accusation after another. Martin Luther, do you know you're this? You know you're not that. You know you're, a, I mean, just one after another. And finally, after several of those, Martin Luther in his dream says, are you done, Satan? And so he's like, no, I'm not done. You know you're prideful. You know you're doing this out of self-will, not the worship of Jesus. You know this, you know that about yourself, just on and on and on. And finally, he says it again, are you done now, Satan? And, and in his dream, he's like, yeah, I, I'm done for now, Satan says. And, uh, and I love Martin Luther's response in that moment. Rather than saying, now let me show you how awesome I am. He, he responded like this. I don't deny a single charge that you've levied, but over every one of those charges, write this, the blood of Jesus. That's how we argue our justification. That is how we preach our justification to ourselves. Listen to one author say this, and then we're done. Spiritual health. Who doesn't want spiritual health? I want spiritual health. I hope you want spiritual health. Spiritual health never comes from belittling sin. It never comes by us denying sin in our life. It never comes by us trying to minimize sin in our life. When we receive an accusation, spiritual health does not come by saying, you know what? I know you just said I'm not that awesome, but really, if you just knew me, I'm really that awesome. It never comes that way. That's depending on your own works. It, spiritual health never comes from belittling sin, but from a willingness, and I love this phrase, to bathe sin's filthy entirety in the compassion of God. That's where spiritual health comes from. A willingness to bathe sin's filthy entirety in the compassion of God. Our hearts will not be whole. We will not be spiritual healthy people. Our hearts will not be whole, nor will our lives be more holy if every room and dark corner in them does not echo this promise, there is therefore now no condemnation. Amen? Let's pray together.
I'm gonna give you just a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And, and let me just remind you of who this promise is for. It is for those who are in Christ. So if there has never been that decisive move toward Jesus in your life, what better moment than right now? And I just wonder if there might not be some David Brainerds out there who you've been doing a lot of religious things, but you just are finally, like God is just like putting a new lens over your eyes to see that you've been doing all these religious things in, an order, to, in order to patch up your presentability. You're de- you've been depending on your works to make you presentable to God all of your life. And if this might not be the moment that God actually rescues and saves you for the very first time. And if that's you this morning, if there's never been that decisive move, here's what that decisive move looks like. It looks like you looking at all the sin in your life that you know would disqualify you before God. And then it also looks at you looking at all of your good works in your life that you believe qualifies you before God, that you believe gains you sinning before God. It looks like you turning from all the sin that disqualifies you and all of what you think qualifies you, turning from all of that and throwing your life onto the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if that's you this morning, God stands so ready to welcome you into his family. If that's you, we've got guys over here at our prayer table. They would love to pray with you this morning. We'd love to know about that, to celebrate that decisive move of faith. So if that's you, when we respond, please see those guys right over at the table. And then for the rest of us, man, what a great morning to take a good look at our own hearts. You know, even when we become a Christian, that default pattern of of relating to God based on our own performance, depending on our own works, that doesn't leave us. And so we can so often get trapped back into the way of operating with God that says, I behave my way into no condemnation and, you know, presentability before God and I behave my way out. And if that's you this morning, what a great opportunity to come before the God, to, to admit that before God, to repent of that, to turn from that, to ask God to remind you that because of Jesus, you're a child of his, because of Jesus, you're forgiven and loved, because of Jesus, there will never be a moment where God looks at you and rejects you. Because of Jesus's work for your life, there'll never be a moment where God gets tired of you Because of Jesus' work in your life, there'll never be a moment where God says, you know, they finally behaved this well, so now I can really love them. That moment will never exist for you because of Jesus. So God, will you help us enjoy that this morning? God, would you reacclimate all of our hearts to the fresh air that is the gospel of grace? God, with Paul, could we just remind our hearts when we feel accusation, when we feel there's no way that you could love us, could we just preach with Paul? It's God who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who was raised. Christ Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. Christ Jesus is the one who is interceding for us. God, help us in that. And it's in your good name that we ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.